Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. The Pentagon League suspect appears in court. He's facing two charges for allegedly spreading classified military records online. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has ordered a review of intelligence access. He is vowing to take all necessary measures to prevent any repeat of the classified document leak. The future of the Twitter files. The main journalist involved in releasing the files details what's going to happen next, after he got in a fight with tech CEO Elon Musk. Was paper the culprit? A new report blames the large ballots for the printer problems that occurred in Maricopa County last year. But the Kerry Lake campaign cries foul. The Pentagon leak suspect appears in a Boston courtroom this morning. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira is accused of posting highly classified military documents on Discord, an online chat platform. The young man was charged with transmitting national defense information as well as removing classified information and defense materials. Teixeira didn't enter a formal plea. His detention hearing is set for next Wednesday. Until then, he will remain in custody. Teixeira is a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman. Court documents say he gained top secret access in 2021. Before the arrest, he had used his government computer to search Intel documents for the word leak. Officials said he may be the head of a Discord group where the classified information was first posted, beginning in December. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has vowed to prevent future security leaks by any means necessary. The Defense Secretary is taking action through an intelligence access review he ordered. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us more. Austin's comments came shortly after the FBI arrested 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guard member Jack Teixeira. He was wanted in connection with a major leak of dozens of highly sensitive documents relating to the Russia-Ukraine war. Austin commended the swift arrest in connection with the probe. He said the Department of Defense will continue to review the national security implications of the unauthorized disclosure. I will tell you that we take this very seriously. Austin has assured Americans that the mission of the Department of Defense and the intelligence community remains unchanged. Nothing will ever stop us from keeping America secure. Teixeira was an IT specialist responsible for military communications networks. Officials believe he leaked the Pentagon documents earlier this year across platforms such as Discord. The confidential files included estimated numbers of Russian and Ukrainian casualties that conflict with official estimates and intelligence assessments of both allies and adversaries, among other things. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Patrick Ryder reacted to the leak. This was a deliberate criminal act. Meanwhile, Representative Mike Waltz told Fox News he believes the Biden administration is downplaying the security breach. Yet this seems to have been done so simply. Waltz says the massive security infrastructure within the Defense Department costs billions and billions of dollars. I find this far more serious, more significant. Than According to Waltz, the U.S. has built massive forts around classified intelligence, yet it's insiders who seem to be the biggest threat. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Continuing with the fallout from the leaked documents, one of the documents suggests that U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres was spied on. Here's the response from his spokesperson. The Secretary General has been at his job for, for quite some time. Uh, he's been in politics and a public figure for quite some time. 
So he's not um, surprised, I think, that by the fact that people are spying on him and listening on his, uh, on his private conversations. Another document reportedly criticizes the UN chief as too willing to accommodate Russian interests. The spokesman says he's not soft on any one country or another. Speaking of tech, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has a plan to create rules for artificial intelligence. It's to address concerns with national security and education. The proposal would require independent experts to test AI ahead of public release. They would share the findings with the public. According to Schumer's office, time is of the essence to get ahead of this powerful new technology to prevent potentially wide-ranging damage to society and national security. Schumer's proposal includes guardrails to ensure AI is developed and used responsibly. Schumer cited the Chinese Communist Party's recent release of its own approach to regulating AI as a wake-up call to America. President Biden recently stated that it is still uncertain whether AI poses a threat. Turning to Arizona, a new report says paper is what led to problems with ballot printers in Maricopa County last year. The findings were released by a retired Arizona Supreme Court justice. Justice Ruth McGregor says county officials used longer ballots on thicker paper than previously used. She says that pushed the printers to the edge of their capabilities and added that the pre-election testing may not have caught the problem. That's because the test didn't properly mimic the stresses that printers experience on election day. Kerry Lake's campaign Twitter account called the report a farce, adding it was no surprise that county officials didn't find themselves guilty of any crime. President Biden plans to expand federal health care coverage for DACA recipients, that is, illegal immigrants who came to the United States as children. The immigrants under the program are popularly known as DREAMers. The Department of Health and Human Services plans to amend the definition of lawful presence in order to make them eligible. It would mean they can access Medicaid and Affordable Care Act coverage. The administration says it wants to provide DREAMers with the same opportunities and support as legal citizens. The DREAMers program shields illegal immigrants who arrived in the U.S. at a young age from deportation and provides them many opportunities in the U.S. It affects more than 800,000 undocumented young people. Florida could allow capital punishment for pedophiles. A bipartisan bill seeks the death penalty for those who commit sexual battery on children under 12. The bill states this crime violates all standards of decency held by civilized society. Both the state Senate and the House are considering versions of the measure this week. The proposal stipulates that defendants 18 or older could be sentenced to death if at least eight of the 12 jurors agree. Otherwise, they face life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. It also requires the jury to prove beyond a reasonable doubt at least two aggravating factors to the crime. If signed, the new law would directly challenge a 2008 Supreme Court decision that limits the death penalty to murderers. The state of Maryland ratified the Child Victims Act this week following a staggering church sex abuse report. It detailed at least 600 sexually abused children by more than 150 Catholic priests and others associated with the Archdiocese of Baltimore. The new law repeals the statute of limitations for survivors of child sex abuse to sue their abusers. NTD's Daniel Monahan reached out to attorney Teresa Lancaster, herself an abuse survivor. 
Attorney Teresa Lancaster discussed serial abuser Father Joseph Maskell, who allegedly molested at least 39 victims. Maskell was a counselor at my high school, Archbishop Keogh, and he abused me for two years there while I was a junior and a senior. He abused a lot of girls there. The sex ring at Keogh was, was big. Father Maskell had uh, access to everything. He was a police chaplain, um, he was a military chaplain, and he had a lot of friends. Teresa says Maskell even arranged for certain members of the police to sexually assault girls. Father Maskell would take me and one of my friends on police runs, and um, uh, we, would, we were actually handed over to police and abused by the police. I wasn't the only one. A lot of the girls that came forward experienced the same thing. Some of them um, had the experience in Father Maskell's office at the school. He would bring people in that way. It wasn't uncommon for there to be a police car parked outside of Keogh High School. Teresa remarked that the church knew Maskell was a deviant even before he got to Keogh and aggressively defended the accused while ignoring the victims. And there they had all the records from 66. He had abused uh, people at Our Lady of Victory at St. Clemens, and he was transferred to Keogh after being uh, abusing boys, so maybe they figured the all-girl high school would be better. They want to protect the church at any cost. It's, it's run like a corporation, and they figure they put pressure on survivors when they come forward, and eventually they'll go away. They want to continue making their money, and they don't care. She is calling for more accountability. I would start with the Attorney General's report where it has uh, church leaders listed. They're all blacked out. All those names are blacked out. Now these are the people that moved the priest from parish to parish. They hid it. They enable it. I ask that they show us the names of the individuals that, that failed us terribly. There's a lot of survivors that uh, are dead from suicide and uh, you're messed up in the head. And, you know, care. Come clean and take accountability for all that, that has happened. The attorney has a message for those who have been abused. I do want to say that um, for the victims out there, don't be afraid to come forward and tell your story. SNAP, the survivor's network of those abused by priests, has counselors and we can help. And the big thing is you will be believed. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The battle over books. Commissioners in Texas have ruled that a library in a rural part of the state can remain open, while a court battle over the removal of books deemed inappropriate continues. The books in question contain sexual content. NTD's Cost Jimenez has more on the story. A special meeting was held to consider closing the three public library branches in Llano County, Texas. The library will remain open. We will try this in the courts, not through social media or through news media. So we appreciate everybody being here. This will conclude Commissioner's Court. It comes after a federal judge ruled to return banned books to shelves and not censor anymore. Llano County has become the latest focus in a battle over books in libraries across the U.S. 
More than a dozen members of the public spoke at the meeting. Some wanted the libraries closed until books they labeled pornographic were out. They read aloud explicit sex scenes from the books. However, a majority wanted the libraries to remain open. I think that if you look through history, that the guys closing the public facilities and closing the libraries are not the good guys. Some say the libraries are a viable institution for the county and local residents. We can have meetings there. We have our master gardeners meetings. They have book club meetings. You can meet at, in the meeting room there at the library. That's one of the services. Others argued that on the issue of LGBT content and other sensitive topics, children should not have access. We're talking about sexual orientation, that's, so that's an adult topic. I don't think that a child should be exposed to homosexual or heterosexual content that is explicit in, in that way. This resident says he prefers the libraries open, but is also concerned about explicit content falling into the hands of children. We need, we need to do what we've got to do to protect our children, even though it is unpopular with a lot of people. And I stand on that. In the past year, more than 1,500 titles have been removed from libraries in over 30 states. Following national outrage over coercive and explicit content aimed specifically at children. Cost MNS, NTD News. Now some news on the housing market. Banks say they are actually losing money on home loans, and some of them are backing out of the mortgage lending business. Wells Fargo announced in January it would be scaling back on home loans. And they're not alone. The Mortgage Bankers Association reported that independent mortgage banks and subsidiaries of chartered banks are in the red for the first time since 2008, losing an average $300 on each mortgage. The NBA cited low housing inventory, affordability challenges, and the skyrocketing mortgage rates as reasons that potential homeowners have backed out of the market. The average loan for the first mortgage reached a high of over $320,000, a dramatic increase from around $300,000 in 2022. Applications for refinancing are also down due to low interest rates, further pushing banks away. For a closer look at how some big banks are doing after the recent bank collapses, tune in at 5 o'clock Eastern to our Business News with Don Ma. We'll have detailed analysis on today's bank earnings report. Annual inflation dropped for the ninth consecutive month in March. That's according to the Consumer Price Index. Is this good news for small businesses? To find out, I sat down with Javier Palomares, founder and CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Business Council. Javier Palomares, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So based on your analysis, what's causing this lower inflation? You know, uh, you know, I think I think we see a number of factors here. The, the net, net of it is that, you know, the inflation report came in at 5%, which is uh, certainly better than the 6% we saw at the end of February, uh, and much better than the 9% we saw just a, a few months ago. Uh, but keep in mind, Chris, we're, we're still at more than double the rate that we used to be in the good old days back in uh, uh, pre-COVID years, back in 2020. Uh, back in those days, uh, I speak of it nostalgically, uh, you know, the inflation rate was 1.8%, 1.9%. So while 5% is good, uh, we have work yet to do to get to the rates that were available to us, uh, you know, back in, in the pre-COVID uh, pre era. Uh, we also saw some very positive movement 
uh, in the uh, in the energy sector. Uh, we're beginning to see some movement in domestic uh, oil exploration, uh, and and that bodes well for inflation. It bodes well for the American small business community because as energy costs begin to to decrease, uh, the cost of everything else goes down: manufacturing, transportation, distribution. So this bodes well for the American small business community, and we're thrilled to see these small movements, but movements in the right direction. So do you think inflation will continue to drop, or is this more of a flash in the pan? You know, I'm hopeful that it will continue to drop. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged by what I see in terms of the administration paying attention to this and making the right moves. Uh, as I mentioned just a while ago, there's been a pivot in terms of uh, domestic energy exploration. And, uh, and that's a very positive signal for not only the American people, because we go from being energy dependent to being energy independent, uh, but it's also good for American small business, because at the end of the day, uh, as energy costs go down, so does everything else. The cost of cosmetics, the cost of rubber, the, the cost of transportation, even the cost of farming fertilizer, it all begins to decrease. And eventually, it hits the front door of the American small business community. So, so what do you think the impact of all this will have on small businesses? You know, again, if it continues in this, in this trend, uh, things will get better for us. Uh, we have been struggling. And, and keep in mind, we're still dealing uh, with the after effects of COVID. Uh, we are still dealing with supply chain challenges. Uh, we still have uh, increasing uh, interest rates. Uh, these things have not gone away. And so um, while it's not you know, top of mind in the mainstream media, uh, I, I want to thank you for allowing us an opportunity to remind the American people that the American small business community is critical to the American economy. We create nearly 70 percent of all the new jobs. America works when mainstream works, not Wall Street. And so uh, for us, uh, this bodes well. We're hopeful that the trend will continue. And if it does, then things will get back to normal, to pre-COVID. And uh, our American small businesses, uh, fingers crossed, will weather the storm and will move forward. That's right. Fingers crossed. So these businesses are still facing a shortage of qualified employees, at least according to the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Um, would you say these companies won't be out of hot water for quite some time um, because of that, um, you know, that additional uh, factor? Yeah, that, that is uh, increasingly difficult for the American small business community. It has been for a while. You know, finding and then retaining uh, qualified employees is a huge challenge for us. It's a very, very competitive uh, environment. Uh, I don't see a lot of bright spots as it relates to that, uh, but I'm hopeful that is, as, as we begin to see other costs decrease, we'll be able to afford to pay a bit more for the employees that we need. Uh, but at this juncture, it is increasingly difficult for us. Uh, it's been a challenge, and that challenge will not soon go away. Uh, we need to see uh, a continued trend uh, of lowering of interest rates, lowering of, of the inflation rate, uh, lowering the cost of just running the business. We can then take those savings and invest them in, in higher uh, salaries for the right uh, qualified kinds of employees that we need and to be able to retain them to continue to grow the American economy. Javier Palomares, founder and CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Business Council, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it.
about 100,000 registered nurses in the U.S. left the field due to stress and burnout during the pandemic. That's according to a survey published Thursday by the National Council of State Boards of Nursing. The researchers analyzed data from nearly 30,000 registered and advanced nurses and more than 24,000 licensed practical or vocational nurses across 45 states. More than a quarter of those surveyed planned to leave the industry or retire in the next five years. More than 60% of the nurses surveyed said their workload increased during the pandemic, and more than half said they felt emotionally drained at work. Almost half of nurses, mostly those with less than 10 years' experience, said they felt fatigued or burned out. Exhaustion was a driving factor behind a strike in New York in January, when more than 7,000 nurses took to the streets to call attention to staffing shortages and burnout. Tensions are running a bit high between Twitter files journalist Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk. Taibbi now explains what future reporting of the remaining Twitter files will look like. Here are the details. Twitter files journalist Matt Taibbi detailed how his future on Twitter will look. Last week, Twitter reportedly added safety labels to Substack articles shared on Twitter, marking them as unsafe. This led to Taibbi announcing in his Racket News newsletter that he's leaving Twitter, writing, I'll be using the new Substack Notes feature, to which you'll all have access, instead of Twitter, a decision that apparently will come with a price as far as any future Twitter files reports are concerned. Musk responded to the allegation saying Substack links were never blocked. Matt's statement is false. Substack was trying to download a massive portion of the Twitter database to bootstrap their Twitter clone, so their IP address is obviously untrusted. In this week's newsletter, Taibbi detailed how Musk allegedly responded to his use of Substack instead of Twitter, saying, This prompted a quick ping and a furious signal question. So you want Substack to kill Twitter? According to further writing by Taibbi, Musk allegedly wanted the journalist to market his work on Twitter instead of Substack. The tech CEO apparently also temporarily disabled previous Twitter files on Taibbi's profile, to which Taibbi responded by posting them on other platforms, such as Facebook and more. With regards to the remaining Twitter files, which still have to be published, Taibbi said on Truth Social, holding up my end of the deal, these will appear on Twitter first. They just won't be on my account, since I wouldn't wipe with Twitter after the events of last week. Taibbi added that he has no personal issues with Musk, reportedly writing in a Substack post, Thanks to him and the Twitter files, ordinary people know a lot more than they ever could have hoped to about how information is managed in this country. He added that he can't keep using Twitter given that it has censored Substack, a site Taibbi calls an open outlet for journalists. When we come back, Germany is reconsidering its deal with China for stakes in a Hamburg port. That's due to a change in the port's security status. And South Korean authorities seized a record amount of illegal drugs in 2021. Those in recovery advocate for rehabilitation treatment. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Germany is reviewing China's controversial stake in Hamburg shipping port. The decision might renew the political row in Berlin over the risks of Chinese investments. 
Is China allowed to buy shares in Hamburg's Tollerot port? That's what the German economic officials are now reassessing. Earlier this year, the country's information security agency classified the terminal as critical infrastructure. That allows the German economy ministry to block purchases from companies outside of the European Union. Last year, Prime Minister Olaf Scholz gave the go-ahead to Chinese state-owned shipping giant Costco. The company was allowed to buy a 25% stake in the Tolerot terminal, less than the 35% it initially sought. But the green light still raised security concerns in Berlin. Schultz's coalition partners condemned the deal as increasing vulnerability to China. The Chinese foreign ministry responded to the latest review. A spokesman warned Germany to avoid what he called politicizing commercial cooperation. Hamburg is a key node in Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. It's the third largest container port in Europe, with one-third of its cargo shipped to or from China. By land, it's also a major destination on the China-EU freight train route. Costco has invested in dozens of terminals around the world, with Hamburg being the last link in its European network. The German foreign minister speaks in Beijing. During a conference with the Chinese foreign minister, she says Europe does not want to see the Chinese regime try to violently retake Taiwan. We are observing the increasing tensions in the Taiwan Strait with worry. So this is why it was important to me during the talks. With all due understanding of the sensitivities of the Taiwan question, we stand firmly by our One China policy. And that conflict must only be solved peacefully. A unilateral, violent change of the status quo would be unacceptable for us Europeans. Baerbach arrived in China on Thursday with aims of reasserting a common European Union policy towards Beijing. The Chinese regime recently held military drills around Taiwan, saying it practiced precision strike and blockading the island. Baerbach's visit comes days after French President Emmanuel Macron suggested disarray in Europe's China dealings. He provoked a backlash in the United States and Europe when he called on the European Union to reduce dependency on the U.S. and seemed to support Beijing's controversial policy towards Taiwan. The Chinese communist regime claims the democratically governed island as its own, despite never having ruled Taiwan and has ramped up military intimidation around the island. More on China. Calls are growing for the Biden administration to make one point clear that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if China invades. In an interview with Just the News, Congressman Mike Lawler said the U.S. needs to be much more clear about where it stands and that strategic ambiguity, in his opinion, isn't working. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. Washington's approach toward the Taiwan issue is called strategic ambiguity. The U.S. has never promised to defend Taiwan in case of a Beijing invasion, but it's also never denied it would step in. The policy's goal is to keep the status quo in the region by deterring China from invading Taiwan and, on the other side, not encouraging Taiwan to announce independence, a critical and unacceptable red line for Beijing. President Biden has said three times that Washington would defend Taiwan in the event of a war. The most recent comment came last September. Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging their being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? 
Yes. The White House walked back the statement afterward. Following the interview, the White House said U.S. policy hasn't changed, adding that Washington wants to see Taiwan's status resolved peacefully, but doesn't say whether U.S. forces might be deployed in response to a Chinese attack. Other than Lawler, Congressman Guy Reschenthaler also says the U.S. should be making it very clear it would defend Taiwan. And Senator Lindsey Graham told Fox News that he's open to using U.S. forces to defend Taiwan because it's in America's national security interest. Retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding says the U.S. should let Beijing know its stance on Taiwan. And we ought to let them know that if you invade Taiwan, there will be consequences that put the Chinese Communist Party leadership itself at risk. That's what they're concerned about is, is putting the, the Communist Party at risk. If we're not willing to do that, then you're going to see the Chinese continue past Taiwan to be aggressive with other nations. He added that if the U.S. doesn't take any action, China's military aggression may expand beyond Taiwan to countries like South Korea, Japan and Australia. In South Korea, drug crimes are typically punishable by at least six months in prison. But as the country deals with an influx of drugs, advocates call for greater rehabilitation measures. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. This is Lee Dong-jae. He decided to video record his feelings during his drug rehabilitation and post it on YouTube. He deliberately showed his face. He'd hoped that it would help him kick his methamphetamine habit forever. And it has. He had help from the Drug Addiction Rehabilitation Center. At dark, he received counseling. He also got a part-time job at a restaurant as part of occupational therapy. I never had a job or daily life like this since taking drugs, but now I'm thrilled to think I might be able to regain my daily life. I feel I'm slowly recovering the lively and positive side of me. In South Korea, the total amount of confiscated illicit substances more than tripled in just one year in 2021. Authorities seized a record 2,800 pounds of drugs. I actually feel that more and more drugs are being brought in. Drugs are hidden in many different ways, usually inside food or powders such as seasoning and ground coffee. They're also mixed in shampoo or products for the body. Drugs have become more accessible over the years. Some say early intervention and treatment is key to countering the spread. The golden time for treatment of addiction is when you get caught for the first time. But the government just lost the golden time. If we give this person proper treatment and foundation and let him get through it, we can definitely get good results from treatment and reduction in relapse rates. Most first and second time offenders usually receive suspended sentences, including 40 hours of mandatory drug education. We will crack down strongly on the distribution and manufacturing of drugs that are spreading like an infectious disease. We will make the Republic of Korea a drug-free country again by strengthening rehabilitation, treatment and prevention education. Technically, many drug crimes are also punishable by death. But South Korea has not carried out any executions since 1997. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. When we come back, fears are growing that jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been poisoned. He is known for his criticism of President Putin. And in France, parents push back against drag queen story hours for kids. 
find out what they're saying here on NTD News Today. The former European Parliament vice president accused of corruption has been released after four months in jail. Eva Cayley is still facing charges, but had few words for the media. I thank you. My daughter is waiting for me, so I'm very happy that I will be with her in a bit. So thank you. Thank you. We will talk soon. We will talk soon. Thank you. The 44-year-old Greek socialist is accused of accepting bribes from Qatar and Morocco. It's one of the biggest corruption scandals to hit European Union institutions. Um, Kaylee was detained uh, along with three others during police raids in December. Authorities recovered the equivalent of over $1.6 million in cash. She will wear an electronic tag and will not be allowed to leave Belgium. Kaylee and the Qatar government have denied any wrongdoing. Morocco has complained of judicial harassment and media attacks. The three others who were arrested have also been released. Turning to Russia, the nation's most prominent opposition politician is grappling with a mystery ailment. He's in jail, and his spokeswoman says he lost about 17 pounds in just over two weeks. Allies of Alexei Navalny, the imprisoned arch-critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin, say he's been hit with an unknown ailment behind bars, has lost 17 pounds in just over two weeks, and say they fear it may be the result of a slow-acting poison. That's according to Navalny's spokesperson, Kira Yarmish. Navalny is Russia's main opposition leader in prison on fraud and contempt of court charges they say were trumped up to silence him. The latest information we have is from Tuesday, uh, because communication with Alexei is very difficult right now, so we don't get news as fast as we would like them to appear. Uh, his lawyer uh, told us uh, that um, there was an ambulance call for Alexei uh, on Friday uh, because of severe stomach pain um, he had, uh, which is a huge surprise for us, uh, to put it mildly, because Alexei um, has never experienced anything like this before. If it is poisoning, it may not be his first. Three years ago, Navalny survived an apparent poisoning attempt with what Western laboratory tests said was a nerve agent. Navalny accused the Russian state of trying to kill him, which it denied. The Russian prison service has also previously denied allegations that its employees have mistreated Navalny and didn't respond to a request for comment. Russia's deputy foreign minister said Thursday that the possible exchange of jailed American journalist Evan Gershkovic could only be discussed after his trial. That's according to Russian state news agency TASS. He also accused the Wall Street Journal of trying to escalate on this topic day by day. The Wall Street Journal's newsroom and other news organizations have been united in calling for the release of Gershkovic, who the U.S. considers wrongfully detained. Gershkovic was arrested on espionage charges, which he denies, and currently awaits trial in the notorious Lefortevo detention prison. In France, drag queen story hours have been coming to public libraries across the country. The trend, which originated in the U.S., has caused a stir in the French public debate. French NTD program Nouvelle Angle spoke to the president of Parents Association and a psychiatrist who has been vocal about the potential harm for children. NTD's France correspondent David Vives brings us this report. 
In cities across France, groups have joined forces with local authorities to organize readings or so-called inclusive stories to children from age 4 or 7. For three years, every March, Paris City Hall has been proclaiming an Equality Month. A library in the 13th district tried to organize a drag queen story hour. But the event faced strong opposition on social media and from political groups that tried to have it cancelled. The same happened in southern city of Toulouse, where City Hall then decided to allow only adults to attend the Drag Queen Story Hour workshop. Vanessa van der Lelige is the president of a parent association who has confronted authorities on this topic. The idea is to be really committed to protecting the moral and physical integrity of children from the outset. And there we feel that there's a real danger in this area. And we really want to send a strong message and say, stop. Because in fact, this is what finally made us start this association. It was to say stop to the authorities who took over the parental authority, the responsibility that we have as parents, the education of any child, everything, everything, everything that concerns our children, in fact. Van der Lelige says that this issue is tied with another concern. Some parent groups have raised a concern over sex education in schools. The association Maman Louvre says that what they called pornographic courses are being taught in year six classrooms without consent from parents. Van der Lelige says this is undermining parents' authority to protect their children. We really are experiencing this LGBT trend which keeps resurfacing. And as we all know, any message that's repeated, that's almost propaganda, at some point it can become a trend, especially for young teenagers. Which, in my opinion, can be very, very dangerous because we all know it. We all experience this period from 12 to 18 to 20 years old. I want to say that that's a very delicate period where we are in the middle of a physical and emotional transformation where we ask ourselves many existential questions on how to behave, how to be in society based on the belonging to a group. Psychiatrist Dominique Chaton says there is a lack of transparency on how drag queen storytime activities are organized. Who is in charge of this kind of thing? I wonder how it is that the authorities condone or support this kind of reading. It seems that it could even enter elementary school classes, the lessons of sexual education, or even more widely, who decides this? Who will be responsible when the damage being done comes to light? There will be victims, I can tell you that. If we continue on this path, sooner or later, there will be victims. We already see testimonies in the United States, young people in their 20s who have detransitioned. The UK-based Family Education Trust has called drag niche adult entertainment that are never suitable for children. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Scotland is also dealing with the question of transgender identity. Westminster has blocked the bill which would allow people in Scotland to self-identify their legal gender without medical diagnosis. But the Scottish government is set to launch a legal challenge. Westminster said the bill clashes with UK-wide equality laws. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak defended the decision and said the government will follow the court process if needed.
The Secretary of State said at the time, you know, it was a decision that we made after taking very careful and considered advice and we had concerns as the UK government Secretary of State set this out at the time, concerns about how Scotland's Gender Recognition Act would interact with reserve powers about the operation of the Equalities Act, the protection of women uh, elsewhere in the UK as well and that's why we took the decision to block the, the GRR and obviously there's a, if there's a court process we will follow that through. The Scottish First Minister previously called blocking the bill an undemocratic veto. Coming up, an innovative solution for trash that would otherwise be burned in a landfill. An artist turns scraps into colorful blankets, clothes, and accessories. And in East Central Africa, a former journalist is helping the environment with a special plant. Stay tuned for more on Uganda's bamboo farming when we return. Welcome back. With storms and tornadoes ravaging U.S. towns, on the other side of the Atlantic, scientists are testing how future homes will survive extreme weather. NTD's Colin Fredrickson brings us more about the U.K.'s Energy House 2 project. Residences inside a laboratory. These are the subjects of an Energy House test project at the University of Salford in Manchester. Researchers are looking at how the two houses adapt to extreme weather conditions. So you can see within this chamber, what we're trying to do is to control the weather. And so we can take it down to minus 20 and up to plus 40 and create all the other weather conditions, including snow. Our goal here is to look at developing a way of testing these buildings to their extreme. So what happens when we push a lot of wind-driven rain onto them? What happens when we push a lot of solar radiation? How do these buildings deal with that? But more importantly, when we put people inside them, how do they deal with it as well? And what can we learn from that? The test houses were constructed in January. The nearly $20 million project will explore how to deliver zero-carbon housing on a large scale using off-site lightweight building solutions. The, the walls themselves are a very different wall. They look like brick, but they're actually a brick effect. So the system itself is a lot more, a lot lighter. It's a timber frame construction, highly insulated, very airtight, with this lightweight system on top. Dubbed the future home, one of the two houses will feature next generation smart technologies. Those include the UK's first roof-mounted air source heat pump, mechanical ventilation, enhanced insulation, and a prototype shower that recovers heat from wastewater. These two homes are looking to predict the future home standard, which comes in 2025. That will develop our need for renewables in houses. So air source heat pumps, for instance, are present in both of these buildings. But we're also looking at testing things like infrared heating systems and underfloor heating as well. So it's a big experiment, really. It's to find out what is the best for these particular types of houses. And by testing it, we're testing a number of different aspects. We're testing how people will live in it, most importantly, our customers. And then we're testing the technology that's going to be used around it. And then, most importantly, the interaction between the two. The test will bring together 50 new and existing technologies to find the best match for any home type. And so in this home, we've probably got about 40 to 50 different ingredients. I'll only use 15. But those 15 will change, so the ingredient for an apartment will be different to that of a house. 
The Institute hopes the results will reveal the most effective ways to cut carbon emissions and control the cost of running a home. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. A Kyrgyz artist has found a way to combat toxic fumes choking her city. She's turning trash into clothes that would otherwise be burned in a landfill. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on her style. Garments are a major industry in Kyrgyzstan, a Central Asian nation of about 7 million. But manufacturers often discard scrap material in landfills outside the capital, Bushkek. The waste is burned or scavenged to heat people's homes. I hope the authorities will pay attention to this soon. There are about 40 families living here now. We're all being poisoned by the smoke. It's actually very harmful to the lungs. We can't leave. We must stay. It's a small house, but it's ours. Those fumes make the air even more toxic in Bishkek. The capital is already one of the world's most polluted cities. But artist Sholpan Alamanova came up with a solution. She uses a traditional patchwork sewing technique called karak to recycle the textile waste. Her works include colorful blankets, clothes, and accessories. There is a huge demand for new clothes. The number of workshops in Kyrgyzstan is growing, and accordingly, the amount of textile waste that is thrown out daily in tons is growing proportionally. And Kurok, to some extent, can help to reduce this amount of waste. Alamanova's workshop has become part of a global trash-in trend. The style promotes the use of recycled and discarded materials to create garments, jewelry, and art. Every single item that we make with students, besides the fact that we revive our traditional art, there's also a very pleasant feeling that, at least a tiny bit, we made Kyrgyzstan cleaner. And at least a tiny bit, we helped our country, our nature, maintain the purity of the air, water, and land. Alamanova's team has grown to more than 80 women. They've processed 660 pounds of fabric within a few months. Works by Alamanova and her students were displayed at an art show in Kazakhstan last month. One of her Kazakh students vowed to start a similar project there. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A surprise cure for environmental destruction, the farming of bamboo. In East Central Africa, a former journalist is turning that concept into reality. Just north of Uganda's capital, Kampala, a former journalist is busy on his bamboo farm. He started the growing project in 2009 as a hobby, hoping to reverse the environmental degradation in his country. Bamboo, you cut it down, it takes one season, it is back. It, it, it grows back, so it's a magic blade of sorts that we need to use in our fight to save our environment. Thanks to population pressure and illegal logging, Uganda has lost over two million acres of tree cover. The figure makes up almost a third of the country's total area. Kalima says bamboo speeds up recovery of the environment. It grows faster and absorbs more carbon dioxide than other plants and trees. Farmers are coming to realize the value of bamboo in protecting the soil, though the high cost of seedlings might be a deterrent. The challenge we are seeing, the, the, the price of a seedling is still very high. One seedling is about one dollar. Uh, there are others which are even more expensive, costing up to ten dollars one seedling. Kalima is passing on his farming experience to others throughout the country. Many have recognized the multiple benefits of bamboo. Uh, when bamboo drops these leaves, they leave their down, and after all, they 
decay and decompose, so it hides nutrients in the soil. So it will not need, not need much manure, fertilizers to apply on. Some of what I've learned is that bamboo, it can be medicinal. Through its charcoal, they, they burn the, the, the stem, which is called the kalp. So you get that charcoal, it's good for digestion, and you can make herbal soap from it. Bamboo is known for its strength and durability. Kalima says the plant can be used to produce thousands of potential products and is even strong enough to build bicycle frames out of. He encourages more people to grow bamboo. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. In a Turkish city, residents are making sure stray dogs and cats are cared for. Details to come here on NTD News Today. Life has never been easy for stray animals, but in Turkey's Istanbul, they are doing just fine with the help of loving and caring citizens. Let's take a look. Istanbul may be the capital of strays, with hundreds of thousands of dogs and cats roaming around streets and parks. Tarahe Castelli is one of the residents who goes out of their way to feed the little creatures. I come every day. I see the cats every day. She knows the name of every cat in Mecca Park and shares with them food from her own table. I eat fish as a meal. For example, there is fish today, so I will bring fish in the evening. There are many people who give food every day. They give chicken, they come from the fire department, they leave pasta. In one corner of the same park, electrician Ali Turan set up a makeshift cat home. Inflation has driven up medical costs and the price of cat food. But fortunately, Turan receives donations from passers-by and locals. People seek what they love. I am in love with them. They are my friends. They are my children. I come every day because I see them as my children. They are under my protection, like their father. For years, Turan has battled against those who oppose animal shelters in the region. He implores local authorities to take care of the animals' medical needs. In another neighborhood, residents are doing the same for homeless dogs. There are shopkeepers here, the hairdresser, florist, curtain maker, and we chip in for dog food among ourselves as much as we can. The municipality is helping too. Here we look after them like a family, like they are one of us. Sure, they live in the street, but we provide everything we can. Some canines have fully mastered street life. They know exactly which restaurant to wait outside for dinner. And usually, it won't be long before a customer brings out some food. People here are generally considerate of stray animals. They help in any way they can, and we leave water or food at our doorstep. Municipalities have built shelters for animals throughout the city. Veterinarians there offer sterilization to control stray animal populations. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Meet Pearl, the world's shortest dog. The two-year-old Chihuahua is shorter than a popsicle stick and only about as long as a dollar bill. The pocket-sized pup is the new official holder of the Guinness World Record for shortest dog alive. She was born in Orlando, Florida and is actually related to the previous record holder, Miracle Millie, who had the same owner. Pearl's owner says she is a bit of a diva, 
She enjoys eating high-quality food like chicken and salmon and loves dressing up. A dwarf Yorkshire Terrier holds the record as the tiniest pup ever at just 2.8 inches tall. With age comes wrinkles, and many say their complexions just aren't what they used to be. But it's not all hopeless. NTD's Gina Marie has some tips for us. Here's Strong Mind and Body. Sadly, no one has found the fountain of eternal youth, but there are some anti-aging superfoods that come close. Stock up on these bites next time you're at the grocery store. Let's look at number one, chia seeds. Chia seeds, which were a staple in the ancient Aztec and Mayan diets, are nutrient dynamos. They have three times the antioxidants of blueberries, six times the calcium of milk, and more iron than spinach. You'll find plenty of healthful omega-3 fatty acids in chia seeds. Chia seeds are beneficial to your skin in so many ways. They combat dryness and decrease age spots. Number two, avocado. This rich, creamy, satisfying fruit is a powerhouse superfood. Just like wild salmon, avocados are packed with good fats and are good for your skin and heart. They've got more potassium than a banana, are rich in fiber and jam-packed with nearly 20 different vitamins, minerals and antioxidants. Number three, blueberries. A single serving of blueberries contains more antioxidants than a serving of plums, strawberries or cranberries. Anthocyanins, the age-defying antioxidants in blueberries, have been shown to reduce inflammation, protect the skin from oxidative stress as we age and improve weight maintenance. Number four, olive oil. The most abundant polyphenol in olive can protect DNA and slow down aging, and that's not all. Findings from a 2019 study showed that olive oil increases collagen production and accentuates stress-induced signs of aging. Just be sure to get extra virgin olive oil. Number five, mixed nuts. No matter which nut you choose, they are all anti-aging superheroes. They give you plenty of vitamin E, omega-3s, minerals, micronutrients, selenium, and a generous amount of fiber to age well. No single food will give you 20-something skin at 60, but these anti-aging superfoods will help you eat your way to a healthy and long life. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. I'm Chris Beers, NTD News, New York City.